Let's go, Lo-Fi Polysock coming at you. Michael Pickering here with our good friend Gregory Day, a writer, director, bookseller, and the voice behind Hipsville AD, the fanatical sect of God of subcultures and fervent rambling of all breeds of cinematic pleasure. How we doing out there, Gregory Day? No, man, I'm well. How are you? I'm doing great, doing great. And what juicy top 10 movie list do you have for us today? Yeah, we're doing something a little different today. We're going to be talking about someone else's list instead of me presenting my own list. Ooh, yeah, someone else's list. All right. Yeah, all right. yeah. Many, 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 many people's list. But this is, uh, we're going to be talking about the 20 or 2022 Sight and Sound Magazine's uh, greatest films of all time list. Uh, but uh, it is a top 100 list. But today we're just going to be focusing on numbers one through 10. Now, I've heard of Sight and Sound magazine, but I, I do listen to, and in the past I listened to like movie news and, and industry news and stuff like that. But I don't know if regular casual cinema goers or movie lovers or streamers know what Sight and Sound magazine is. So, so yeah. who is Sight and Sound? Yeah, let me break it down for you. Basically, Sight and Sound magazine is one of the most revered magazines uh, about uh, film writing um, ever published. It's owned by the British Film Institute or the BFI for short. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's a great magazine. Uh, it is, uh, you can get it here in the States, but you got to kind of wait for it every uh, month to get over here because it is published in Britain. Uh, but yeah, it's just a really great uh, magazine. Every month they focus on what's new and they have their new reviews like you would, uh, which you, like you would expect from a publication. But also they, they do deep dives into a uh, history of cinema or what's coming out on home video or talking about restorations. And this was just like a really great publication about culture around film as well as keeping up with um you know the current releases um but the magazine uh back in 1952 started this list where they pulled critics and trying to nail down what is the film canon and so they would pull a bunch of critics and then release uh you know take the averages and then release the top 100 and so that started in 1952 and then every 10 years they would do the same thing they would pull critics and see where the conversation is around the greatest films of all time. And so every decade the list comes out and you see how things fluctuate within the list. Um, and obviously this year, things got really controversial as um, the list changed the most, you know, uh, significantly changed um, in the films that are on that list. Um, and so it's definitely, you can definitely tell that our film culture is changing and it's becoming more, um, inclusive and that was uh, really a result of making the uh, who is being pulled you know uh, the inclusivity of that um branching out to more people uh to to do the list but also people of color and women and you know everyone kind of collaborating on this more than just uh, your your scholars and your um you know, um, gatekeepers, uh, if you will. Uh, and yeah, and so this list definitely is different now than it was uh, for the last few decades. So I'm excited to talk about what the, t you know, what these 10 movies are that uh, people consider to be the greatest films of all time. Me too, me too. And with that, why don't you take us into number 10? What's the first one on the list? <laughs> yeah, number 10 is Singing in the Rain from 1952. Uh, it's arguably the greatest musical Hollywood ever produced. Um, it's a it's a collaboration between director Stanley Donan and actor dancer Gene Kelly. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, outside of being a great musical and ha it has, you know, stellar set pieces. It's a film about the anxiety of, of that Hollywood went through when it switched from being uh, silent to sound. And um, I think that is mainly, you know, outside of the entertainment factor, I think mainly why 
lots of um you know, film people gravitate towards it because it is this movie about movies. It is about uh, the industry in transition. It's about an art in transition. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a hell of a you know entertaining film. I, mean, I think everyone knows the song "Singing in the Rain" or or knows the image of Gene Kelly dancing in the in the rain to that song. Uh, it, even if you don't know the rest of the film, or if you haven't seen it, but I think that's so iconic. But um, honestly, I'm a little miffed at this movie made it to the top 10 uh <laughs> greatest films of all time i'm nothing against it i think it is a, it is a great movie um but i just don't see the influence that this film has had over time on a lot of cinema whereas you know maybe a film that uh is similar to it like the red shoes you can see the techniques of the filmmaking in that movie or the themes of that film kind of um influencing later generations but singing in the rain i don't know um Definitely a great movie, but I don't know if it's, you know, if it's worthy of being in the top 10, but uh, apparently our film culture does think so. But I tell you, uh, I mean, I know this is the British Film Institute, BFI, and so mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not just Hollywood, but I'll just use Hollywood as a word so people know. Hollywood loves movies about Hollywood. It, it absolutely does, yes. Is so, in that respect, a film, even though it's 70 years ago, a film about Hollywood transitioning, I am not surprised. And I, there are a lot of people who are probably somewhat involved in this movie who might still be alive or their kids are still alive for sure. Mm -hmm. And I saw this movie when I was very young. Like my parents grew up on this. They introduced it to us and we used to sing the song and I'm not going to sing it now. But <laughs> but I mean, honestly, I had no recollection of what this movie was about. And the trailer really illuminated me to it. All I knew and remembered was like the song. Yeah. So, like, I have no deep attachment to this film, but my parents' generation love it. Yeah. And that makes me think, like, if these people in their ages or, or the movie industry people who are voting and critics and stuff like that, yeah, they probably still do have a huge attachment to this song. So I can mm -hmm. understand, like, why they would still have it on their list. But I agree with you. Top 10 of all time? Get out of here. No way, yeah. no way. Yeah, I think in another way, though, uh without spoiling the rest of the list yeah to me not yeah obviously people have read this list has been out since uh late last year but this is the only like true hollywood studio movie um on this list i would say um there's another one on here that we'll talk about later but i think this this is the one that like most represents hollywood as a studio system you know its use of sets and color and um production um and so, yeah, I guess in in one way, it does kind of represent that, the old Hollywood. But in another way, it's just it does baffle me um, that it made it this high. I hear you. I hear you. Although I have a feeling, like you said, without spoiling anything for the future, there might be a few others similar to that as well. <laughs> yeah, Why don't you take us into our number nine? Yeah, or, number nine. Yes. Yeah. Uh, sight, sound and sights, <laughs> number nine. <laughs> yes. Uh, so number nine on the list. Oh, and also just to clarify, um, the people who are polled in this or, or globally, um, critics globally, uh, and filmmakers and other things. So it's not just uh, Americans and uh, the Brits voting on this. So um, if you were to look at the top 100, you will see a, a, a you know a wide range of uh, international films in here as well. So uh, right, let's, speaking, let's talk yeah. about that again later yeah. on. For yeah, sure. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but speaking of global movies, uh, number nine is uh, Man with a Movie Camera. It's from 1929. It's from Russia. Um, and this is uh, a documentary of sorts, but it is a highly experimental documentary. Um, and it's just uh, the director, um, maybe going to mangle his name, but uh, 
uh, Ziga Vertov uh, took his camera and went and shot a bunch of footage um, in many different Eastern European cities, mostly Moscow and Kiev and some other places um, in Russia and its neighboring territories at that time. And um, it's just very frenetic and um, it, it perfectly captures like Russian, urban Russian life at that time, like the train systems, the workers, the factory workers, the bustling streets. Um, but why it's so you know, well-regarded is it's, it's got this energy to it that you can watch a film today and you see music videos, commercials, just, you know, coming out of the style of this fast editing and like the camera um, kind of being pushed, um, excuse me, into like uh, very high speeds and just capturing the freneticism of life. Um, and it's very typical of Russian cinema at this time to be very experimental with editing and split screens and um, doing wild dissolves. And, you know, the Russians really pioneered all that stuff um and so this film is very indicative of that uh, however i will say i'm i am surprised that this film rep is representing that culture more in this list more than something like battleship potemkin which is uh, one of the most famous films ever made about um the odessa uh, massacre in russia uh and it's in, in that film is a film you can see that has um influenced many filmmakers over many generations uh the editing the the scene on the stairs that of uh, the you know being a bunch of uh citizens being uh gunned down and falling down the stairs and i think just describing that everyone has seen uh, a recreation or a parody of that in some in some capacity over the last uh, 100 years or so but um yeah maybe with the movie camera uh in that russian style being represented here in the top 10 i had never seen this one but i think the name of it captures it perfectly mm -hmm. it, it really just seemed like in the trailer was a guy going around with a, a movie camera just trying mm -hmm. different stuff and then different things with editing and like to that end like you said i could see how this was pioneering for its time and it started the transition about really pushing what you could do in film and how you yeah. could tell a story mm -hmm. i think like you said there might be some other choices because because I don't know if there's an actual storyline through this other than it, it's kind of meta, but yes. mm -hmm. I don't know. Like I said, I, I haven't seen this one, but I did yeah. think, you know, it was pretty cool from mm -hmm. a 1929 film. Yeah. Well, yeah, so I will say it's uh, years ago. Mm -hmm. I will say, yeah, it's it it's, doesn't really necessarily have a narrative thread, you know, like a because it, it is a documentary. Um, but even in a documentary sense, it doesn't really have a narrative structure. It's um, it's very meta, but also I think what's interesting is that uh, in the film, like and probably why it's on this list is because it it does go out of its way to talk about the camera and the human eye and how they're related and what is this thing that's happening with cinema, and um, but it's also uh, him pointing a camera at another camera, and you saw this camera as a character in the film as well, and so it is getting very meta, um, which of course um, just like seeing in the rain cinema loves itself you know and so it's, the so, it's <laughs> so it's all you know it's always kind of like that cycle of stuff and so maybe you know maybe maybe that sense of it is why it, it made it this far up the list yeah it's interesting i think that may be it but we'll see we'll see we'll keep going what you got for number eight Michael? yeah number eight i think this is where things uh get controversial for this top 100 list uh to some people's point of view um this is and you know coming in at number eight is a film from 2001 it's david lynch's Mulholland drive um this is a list this, excuse me this is a film that's uh, less than 25 years old and it's be you know it's it's this high up on the list uh but i think for good reason because it's one of the most probably influential films of this 
of our new century. Um, you know, it, it kind of opened the door to strangeness in certain ways and like dream logic to kind of permeate in the in the mainstream. Um, whereas David Lynch had been making films like this before, but this somehow this film somehow managed to um break a little further uh into the mainstream. And so now you see um you know, television shows being a little weirder. You see lots of movies like um, some some recent things like uh, I forget the name of the film that came out uh, last year, but um, No Worry Darling, things like that, uh, where there is an acceptable strangeness to, to to mainstream films now that maybe wasn't there before. But um, this is a film about a, a woman who goes to Hollywood to, to pursue her dreams and she ends up um, running into a woman who has amnesia. And as these two women get together to try to solve uh, the mystery of this woman's past, they begin to fall in love. And then, of course, um their dreamy existence starts to turn into real darkness as they pursue that um that past and they find that maybe their reality isn't necessarily um real and so this is a uh, very typical of david lynch to have um to to uh, examine you know the uh, the superficial coding of american life and dig deep into the the darkness beneath it and so um you know again it's a movie about hollywood it's uh, in a, examining um the you know, um, falsehoods of this, uh, this dream factory that this town has produced. And um, yeah, and it's, it's terrifying. And it's uh, very beautifully shot. And um, I'm not surprised it's made it this high up on the list, how influential it is. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting, uh, it's interesting to see how a film like this has risen so high so quickly. So David Lynch is really well known to me. Mm -hmm. But this movie, I've never seen, nor have I ever heard of. What? And I feel like I should have because, I mean, yeah. think about it, because mm -hmm. this came out in 2001. Mm -hmm. We knew each other in 2001. This was right around the time when I was going, working in cinema and movie theaters. And mm -hmm. like, I was in the know about film. Mm -hmm. And I never heard of this one, even though I know well. David Lynch. So I, I was like, immediately, I was like, how do I not know this film? And if it's so great, how can it be so great? And I don't know <laughs> it. And then yeah. you hit it. It's Hollywood mm -hmm. about Hollywood again. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, like, I'm not saying the film isn't great, but I'm like, it came out at a time where I should have heard about it. Yeah. Where I was plugged into cinema life. I was working mm -hmm. in cinema. Mm -hmm. And yet I didn't hear about it. I don't know. Yeah. I, don't know. I do find that weird because, yeah, when it did come out, it definitely... Um was no sleeper like i think it it really hit the critical i mean you know me it, it probably didn't have a very uh big theatrical release especially where we were living in 2001 um but uh it definitely hit the critics pretty hard when it came out and i mean and and um on a first viewing i think it'll probably shock you what it how it tells its story and like where it goes and like you know two-thirds of the film two two thirds way into the film things really change i think part of its narrative um device is maybe what is also so attractive to people because um it's so different than anything else on this list or it's so different from anything else um other than other david lynch films so um yeah i think there's an attractiveness to it because it's so weird and so different um and it came out right at the top of the of the century and showed a lot of promise for like what you know what new areas of cinema we, we could be going in yeah, for sure. I, I, I when immediately I saw it, I was like, 2001. I was like, look at this list. Make it a kind of new age, kind of, kind yeah. of. Yeah. 
All right, what you got for number seven? Yeah, number seven is a film that we've talked about before on this uh, show. Yes, we have. Uh, yeah, Butcher Vi from 1999. This is another one of the movies that really um, caused controversy in certain circles because it's it, it's uh, I think it was on the list last time, um, as was Mulholland Drive, but it wasn't so high up. And so it transitioned from being um, well later in the list up into the top 10 uh, within a, within 10 year span, um, you know. For those who uh, don't remember us talking about this, it was, you know, it's Claire Denis' adaptation of Billy Budd, set in the French Foreign Legion, and it's about, um, you know, uh, a captain who observes his commanding officer, um, you know, praising a younger guy in, in their platoon, and this causes a jealousy between them, and, you know, it's, it's a real uh, examination of homosexual, or repressed homosexuality in this military setting. Uh, but it's also about the, uh, you know, about tribalism and colonialism, because it is about these soldiers um, who are training for a war that may or may not ever come in a foreign country. Um, it's in Africa and all the main characters are French. And um, so, yeah, it's kind of like mixing all this, uh, you know, all these different themes of masculinity and and colonialism and, and repression. Um, but it's also got a very intriguing way of telling its story and like these episodic uh, segments and then of course the ending i think is uh i won't spoil it everyone should go out and watch the ending because i think it's got one of the most um shocking endings to any film i've ever seen and not in a not in a uh, story kind of way it's just an ending you're never ever going to see coming um but uh it's lead uh, denis levant is an incredibly incredible physical actor and he really pulls things together in that final scene this one was on your top 10 female directors list is that right i think so yeah yeah, yeah, I thought that's that's where it was. And I wonder, you know, considering what you said about the list changing over the past 10 years and who's voting on the list, if this film, considering female director and considering the, the subject matter, if it didn't get moved way, way up the list because the voting population has changed, it has been mm -hmm. more inclusive to women, to other minority groups. And so therefore, like those groups being included in the voting process, I think it isn't necessarily that surprising that this film would move up on the list. What do you think about that? No, I think that's exactly what's going on. I mean, um, to talk about this later also with some other of these choices, um, the, you know, the more diverse pool of people you pull for this, you're going to get starting to get like, you know, different types of films that speak to different types of people. And so I think um, that is definitely a factor. Like I said, you know, it, you know upping the number of women or people of color who are who are being polled in this list but i think also um something that is happening is the the availability of a lot of these films uh with streaming and home video releases with um people at the criterion collection who are restoring these movies and making sure they're getting shown um in different avenues um because for many you know many decades from this list you think about like the 50s through um the 70s you can only go see a movie in a repertory screening or if it was on, if it happened to be on television, um, there wasn't any home viewing until the eighties when the VCR came out. And then of course we have the internet. And so uh, you could only go see certain films that were, you know, that would get screened, but they, those older films to get screened would have to be bankable. Right. So like theaters weren't always being able to take the chances on screening older films if no one was going to come see them. Um, so now that we have this, the internet and home video where we have the sea of old films that could be seen or re reevaluated 
I think that's also a, a factor playing into um, some of these forgotten films or less seen films that do speak to a large portion of people who maybe didn't get to see them when they first came out. That's a great point. Availability. I like yes. that. How mm -hmm. just because availability and technology, the list in and of mm -hmm. itself changes yeah. as well. Yeah. I like it. I like it a lot. Well, why don't you take us to number six now? What do you have on there? Not a surprise yeah. to me at all. Yeah, this is no surprise to me, but I am surprised that it's this low on the list is uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey uh, from 1968. It's number six on this list. Um, obviously, this is one of the most famous films ever made, um, but it's only at number six. So it's kind of strange, um, but it is not a film for everybody. It's a, it is a difficult movie. Um, in parts, and if you're not familiar with it, it is told in different chapters. But the meat of the film is about space space exploration and the mysteries, um, you know, beyond our knowledge um, that may lay out um, out in the universe. And so, you know, plot wise, majority of the film is about these astronauts who are on this mission, and the AI of their ship malfunctions, and they have to battle with it in order to survive. And then. Most famously, once that plot concludes, uh, it leaves the astronauts uh, beyond, you know, beyond the realm of their of where they were traveling, and they enter into this, um, you know, psychedelic trip through space and time. Um, and so, the reason this film is so famous is not only because it's, um, you know, just stunningly beautiful. It's the first film to really try to try to, um, you know, seriously examine space travel. Um, think about the future of what space travel would look like. Came out in 68. Obviously, we hadn't even gone to the moon yet when this film came out. And so it is a lot of forward thinking. But it is also, in, in a weird way, looking at the 60s going into space. And so there's a Howard Johnson's in space. There's um, the traveling through space is also very much like being on an airplane where you have a, a flight attendant and you have your in-store, your in-flight meal. And um, then, of course, by the time you get through all that, you get to... Stanley Kubrick just throwing narrative completely out the window and it's one of the first major studio Hollywood movies that takes an audience into a complete abstraction for the last quarter of its of its runtime or the last third of its runtime um, where you just get treated to a complete psychedelic trip and then the end of the film is completely open to interpretation um, and I don't think audiences has really seen anything like that before uh, or at least on a scale like this, where this is a big budgeted uh, science fiction film. And so it's no doubt to me that this film is so, that it lands on the top 10. I'm just surprised it's not um, higher on the list. You know, for all the hype this movie has had over the past, let's, let's honestly say generations, mm -hmm. I've never seen it. I've never seen it. I have no interest in seeing it. And I likely will never see it. You know, like like it's just one of those films that's like something else on this list. Mm -hmm. It's just like so well known to me. And Stanley mm -hmm. Kubrick is so well known to me. Like mm -hmm. I know exactly what this is and I know how highly it's regarded. So I'm not surprised it's on this list. And like you, I'm kind of I, I would have thought it would have been like a top three movie, really. Mm -hmm. um, but I was just like. No, no. And, and in fact, I think this is the first time I've actually seen a trailer of it or any mm. clips of it. Really? I might have seen mm. some stills of it before, mm -hmm. but the, like to actually watch a trailer of it, I was like, yeah, this kind of reinforces the idea that I'm never going to watch this film. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's a surprise to me that I haven't seen it yeah. in many ways. Yeah. Uh, but it's not a surprise to me that mm. it is on 
mm. this list because like yeah. you said it did so many first mm -hmm. in 1968 yeah and the idea you know 2001 space odyssey it's kind of interesting kind of interesting i dig it i dig it yeah all right what you got for us in our top five going to number five yeah number five um uh, in the mood for love from 2001 um a movie that was made in the year our previous movie was set um and obviously we never got to the world that 2001 a space odyssey um depicts by the time we get to the, the when this film was made when this film was set in the 60s and it's from hong kong buddy um I think we've talked about this film before, but I mean, it's one of the great Hong Kong films. Um, it, you know, it's longing and love in Hong Kong. And um, no one does that better than director Wong Kar Wai. And he's got two of the most beautiful screen actors ever, Maggie Chung and Tony Long, who are playing two people who find out that their partners are having an affair. And so they enter into this um, dynamic where they're trying to reenact what it would be like to have an affair so they can understand why their partners would do it but as they start to re you know to go through the motions of this affair they start to fall in love with each other and it's societal and familiar pressure that uh, puts the screws to them as to whether they would run away with each other to be happy or are they going to go back to their spouses and do what's uh you know what's expected of them and so um it's a truly heartbreaking film but it's just beautiful um and i think that's why it's so high up on this list. Not only does it speak to so many people's experiences with love and loss, um, but just looking at the film from a filmmaking point of view, the photography, the editing, uh, the production design is so gorgeous, but it also uh, manages to strike this balance between feeling like a nostalgic dream for um, you know the classy, colorful 60s and um, examining these deep emotions that these characters go through. Um, yeah, In the Mood for Love, um, I would say if you haven't seen any of the movies on this list, Mr. Pickering or Dr. Pickering, um, <laughs> go watch this one, please. <laughs> we should watch it together. We, we've been meaning yes, to do yes. a watch along. And, and yeah. I do remember we talked about this one on a different yeah. list than your top yes, we have, yeah. cinema. And yeah. it was one of the ones I really wanted to see is yeah. because I think it looks fantastic. It is, uh, yes. The idea that it's included on this list is amazing to me, but it speaks to me in the fact of how mm. great this story must be. The fact that, you know, two people who are married and their spouses have uh, affairs, so they decide to enact what it would be like to have an affair. Then, it, I mean, that story is so convoluted and awesome. I, it's like, yes, yes. And it's number five. Mm -hmm. It's a yeah. it's a drama. It's a romance. It's a Hong Kong film. Like, mm -hmm. Yes, this this checks all the boxes for me, and it's not a movie about Hollywood. So I'm yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and it's from 2001. Yeah, which even speaks more to me in the fact that this mm -hmm. must be a great film. So yeah, we may definitely have to do that watch along. Oh, this yeah. one, in, um, what is it? Chunking, Chunking Express. Express. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, we yeah. need to watch that one too. Yeah. Shout out to the Hong Kong film. <laughs> all right, all right. Back to the list, though. Back to the list. What you got for yeah. number four? Yeah, number four is Tokyo Story from 1953. Uh, we haven't, because I uh, talk about uh, genre filmmaking um, on the on these top ten lists a lot, we haven't really had a chance to talk about Yasujiro Ozu, who was one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Um, I mean, I think he died in the early 60s, so um, or late 60s. So he didn't really have a lot of influence after that. He made a lot of uh, silent films and into the 50s and 60s where he made a ton of masterpieces. But his 
one of his things was really focusing on like one of the themes he he uh, focused on was the family and how family dynamics um create tension within them uh so most of his films deal with like someone getting married and moving out and like how that affects the parents or what the parents expectations on the children to get married and you know there are you know how their happiness is affected and so forth but tokyo story is considered his masterpiece and he takes it one step further and he has three different generations of the family we have the grandparents then we have the like the adult generation so it's you know the the working class um adults and then we have the grandchildren who were still in, in like grade school um and uh the conceit of the film is that the grandmother gets terminally ill and then we see how that um affects the family and so it opens the door to many different emotions for them whether it's sorrow or regret or even ambivalence um whether it's uh i don't you know I regret that I never got to say this to you, or I wish this person would die already so we can get back to business. It, it just opens the door to many different things, and it shows, you know, family pressures and societal pressures um, compounding uh, because of this. But um, Ozu's filmmaking technique is that he withholds um, emotion a lot in his in his um, in his films, and um, he also has long takes, and so he's kind of lulling you into the rhythm of the film to where you um you have to go with it you know it's not on you know as an audience you have to take the take the filmmaker's um pace and go with the story until you start to feel uh, the rhythm of that story and then he'll just come in you know at the end of the film with a huge emotional release and this film certainly has one of those and it's uh you know i have to say that if if you don't uh ball your eyes out at the end of this film you know you're you're uh you're one hard person but um yeah this is i think that's why <laughs> this whole film just like everything about it like it's just universally um you know accepted you know the family stuff the the emotions of losing um the societal pressures the cap you know the, the pressures of capitalist societies all that stuff i think it just speaks to every every uh every person on the planet and um i think that's why it, it's so high on this list you know, at first, before they showed the name of the director, and mm -hmm. I looked at the the name of the film and the year, and I was like, oh, this has to be a, a Kurosawa film. Um, but it wasn't. And mm -hmm. I was like, wow, I've never heard of this director. And then it gets going, and it's showing what was at the time modern Japanese society yeah. in the early 1950s. And I'm like, whoa. I was like, this is way different than Kurosawa, you know, doing like a feudal epic you know japan in the 1600s or something like this this mm -hmm. is showing and like you just said three different generations in japan just a couple years after world war ii yes like world war ii in the japanese surrender in 1945 this film comes out in 1953 and it covers that day and age three different age groups and generations of japanese society that's amazing to me in and of itself that's enough reason to put it on this top 100 list. And the fact that it's number four speaks to me and says, like you said, there has to be something really gripping about this story and the way that it's told in order for it to be that high up. I mean, it's 70 years old, yeah. but uh, you know, I think that's pretty amazing. And I am interested in this one. I'm gonna have to check it out. I need to expand my Japanese director's list aside from Kurosawa. <laughs> yeah, I would say um, for context, Ozu is probably right there's a few others but ozu is right there with kurosawa as far as like who who are 
the directors consider the greatest Japanese artists, cinematic artists. Yeah, Uzu is um, highly regarded, but like you know, in a different way. Like his his whole thing was the domestic drama, whereas Kurosawa's was the was the the epic. Right, right, right. Yeah. I'm gonna have to check this one out for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. All right, we'll take us to your number three. Yeah, and so number three on this list uh, is a film that needs no introduction, but I'm going to do one anyways. Uh, it's Citizen Kane from 1941. This film um, was the number one movie on this list for many decades. Um, I think between 1962 and 2002, it was ranked number one. Um, and if you don't know what it is, it's a, it's a Orson Welles' film that really um, took to examine the life of William Randolph Hearst in his fictional character Charles Foster Kane. Um, but why it's so famous is because it um it changed narrative storytelling. It uh is a film where this media magnet dies in the opening scene and then the rest of the film is an ex uh, you know an exploration of trying to get to the heart of who this really famous man was, but it's told out of order. So it's a reporter interviewing different people. So each different person has a um, a story from a different part of his life so it's not always told in chronological order um but what's also famous about this film is this like the first film to ever um shoot a film in deep focus photography so you can see many different planes um you know in the shot or in focus as opposed to one wide shot or one close-up you can see many different planes so there's someone in the foreground you can see the furniture in the middle ground you can see a character in the background all in all in focus um but also did a bunch of other pioneering things like the tracking shot and trick editing and it was also the it sounds this is gonna be a weird piece of trivia but it's also the first film shot on a studio that put in ceilings on the studio on, on the studio um location so that when they if they shot a scene low enough you would see the ceiling like you were in the real location um Interesting. Which prior to that, they would kind of shoot um, studio films in a, you know, sort of at uh, human eye, eye level so that you would never see the ceiling. You know, if you watch sitcoms or earlier films, you don't really ever see the, the ceiling of the set, you know. Um, and so this is just kind of fully immersing you in this world. Um, and so, yeah, it's just highly influential. I mean, everything after that just, just changed the way movies were made. But I think in another regards, it's about this really um, awful and powerful individual who used his clout as a as a newspaper um, magnet to change political view and, use, you know, force uh, their own point of view into um, journalism. And we're obviously still living in a world where, uh, you know, corporates... Uh, corporate entities own newspapers and television programming and are pushing their own political agenda. And so that's part of uh, what this film is about. And which is also why William Randolph Hearst went out of his way to try to get this movie completely blacklisted and destroyed. And it's why Orson Welles, even though he is regarded as a great American artist, wasn't really regarded as a, uh, a great artist in his lifetime. Um, it was because of just this, this smear campaign that followed this film. So um no surprise that Citizen Kane, for how how you know widely regarded it is, that it's still um, at the top of this list. It is. It is really highly regarded, and so much so that I'm going to say it's a cliche. Like, like <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Citizen Kane being the greatest movie ever is such a cliche mm -hmm. statement, but yeah. at the same time, to me, maybe that's why Sight and Sound magazine decided to put it as number three because they were tired of following that cliche. 
Um, also, like all the other reasons that we talked about, uh, more inclusivity in the voting as well. But, mm -hmm. you know, I understand why it's number three on this list, why it's so high up. But, but just like 2001 Space Odyssey, I've never seen it and I have no interest in seeing it. <laughs> this film has way too much hype built up mm -hmm. around it that if yeah. I were to watch it now, I mm -hmm. would be let down. Like, I don't know. I, I, don't know. I would, really, you think I wouldn't be? I don't think so. I think uh, I think it, it maybe has a reputation for being an old, you know, stodgy film, but it actually has a lot of, you know, energy and character to it that I think um, if you sit down and watch it, it'll still grab you how modern it feels. I don't know. I think I'd be contrary and be like, oh, greatest film ever. I think it sucks. Um, I don't know. Maybe one day. Maybe one day. All right. Well, if, if Citizen Kane used to be number one on the list for so, so long, let's see what dethroned it. What's coming in at number two? Yeah, number two is Vertigo from 1958. And Vertigo um, in 2012 dethroned Citizen Kane as the number one movie on this list. So it was actually number one on the, on the previous iteration of this list. Um, this is Alfred Hitchcock's, um, one of his greatest films he's made. Uh, if you know anything about Hitchcock, like his whole run in the fifties was just insane, like rear window, um, this film, North by Northwest and Psycho all in a row. Um, but this film, I think it, it ranks among my favorites that Hitchcock has done because it's such a, um, exploration of his own psyche. Um, it's a, it is a, you know, like a technicolor noir nightmare, um, about this guy who is so obsessed with this dead woman that he forces another woman to become um, the, the woman he's in love with, um, or is that what's really happening? So it's it's you know you don't know if he's being played by uh, some individuals or if he is playing them or if he is truly in this uh, loop of obsession that uh, is leading to the you know destruction of the, of all of these of all these characters. But um, what is sort of commonly agreed upon that this film is about really the analysis of it is is really looking at um the jimmy stewart character who is forcing this woman to become this other woman um is sort of like a um a stand in for hitchcock himself and like how directors force pe uh, people to become other people for films but especially with hitchcock and his relationship with women uh and his uh, his de demanding presence over them and his possession of them and forcing them to do what he wants them to do is kind of um, presented in this film, or at least that's the analysis of this film, the popular analysis of the film. And I think it's it, it holds a lot of um, truth that yeah, this is um, you know Hitchcock was you know famously obese and and, uh, and you know and uh, went out of his way to make sure that he had the most attractive women in his film. And there's a lot of a lot of written about a lot written about him. Um, you know, that he had a lot of um, self-hatred or whatever you want to call it about his physical appearance and that he would never be able to be with the women that he had cast in his films. And so um, there was a lot of animosity and abuse and, and things that happened between him and some of the women in his films. And so I think this film kind of represents all that um, on the screen. Uh, and it even ends with uh, the last act of the film in front of, um, you know, in a church in front of, I think, some nuns. And so it almost feels like a confession by the time you're done with it. But um, it's a very odd film to have come out of the studio system um, to be so, that feels so personal. It doesn't feel so much like a, like an action film, like North by Northwest or a horror film like Psycho, where it could be this big box office success. Um, and then, you know, it's a film that uh, opens the doors for films like Mulholland Drive. It's got this strangeness to it um, and this um, 
genre experiment, um, opening the psyche of its filmmaker. Uh, and you could see the, not even, that's in 2001, um, when came out, but you could e even see its influence uh, with uh, the Korean film Decision to Leave that came out last year. Like Vertigo is still very much um, influencing filmmakers today. So um, yeah, so I think it's, it's uh, obvious why this film is so high on this list. This movie, I know, I haven't seen it, but I know it quite well. <laughs> And and the word vertigo, mm -hmm. it seems like it's mentioned a lot more these days. Like I hear that word so often, though I always knew it as a drug, even though now it's a medical condition. Mm -hmm. But I was curious, like, what context do they use the word vertigo in this movie, right? So like it's 1958. Mm -hmm. you know, what and, and words. Yeah. they change meaning over time mm -hmm. and so i'm curious you know 75 years ago almost or or 70 years ago whatever it is how was hitchcock using the word vertigo what did it mean yeah. as far as representing this film i think it means two things one um very straightforward in the film the the main character scotty um something bad happens to him at the very beginning of the film and, and it traumatizes him and so uh, as a police officer and so after that he he has uh, a fear of heights and if he goes up so far and he looks down he actually does experience vertigo um like he he experiences the the the, the being disoriented and his, you know his 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 uh, vision disorienting so he is experiencing the medical vertigo uh, but i think in another way it's using it um about the um you know the cloudy dreaminess of what's happening to scotty over the course of the film like or you know the woman that he sees does she really die is he really obsessed with her is she real or is the woman he's creating um you know it's just sort of this mix of emotion and uh reality uh is also you know the vertigo of the film where nothing is nothing is as it seems and you can't really quite put your you know put your thumb on or put your um your finger on the reality of the situation so i think it's you know it vertigo as in the strangeness and the, you know the abstractness of reality that the film is creating Gotcha, gotcha. I find it really interesting that this film dethroned Citizen Kane. And in and, and many ways, like, I think if someone's going to take over, so Citizen Kane was done by Orson Welles, Vertigo was done by Alfred Hitchcock. I think, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that Alfred Hitchcock would be a, a person who could dethrone Orson Welles, mm -hmm. and this movie in particular. But I'm curious, and I don't want to go into it just yet, because like you said, we're going to get into that discussion a little bit later, maybe. Mm -hmm. What changed in 2012 that really made Vertigo pop up? Like, is it really the audiences changed, or is it the availability of it? And I find it interesting to me, like, it doesn't seem common sense that Vertigo was inevitably going to overtake Hitchcock, because they both came out in the 1950s and 1940s. Like, it's not a new comparison. So something new happened in the past 11 years for Vertigo to be seen differently, mm -hmm. even though they've both been out for 70-ish years. Like, that's what's interesting to me. Um, so it's definitely not the film, it's the people making this list that has changed that moved it up to number two. Absolutely. Uh, or like you said, number one last time. But yeah. now Vertigo was dethroned for the current and new number one of Sight and Sound. And why don't you go into yeah. it for us? Yeah, that number one film is Jean Delhomme in 23 Quad Commerce, 1080 Brussels, from 1975 i think we've talked about this film a few times this is one of my personal favorite films um but i was absolutely shocked that it um was placed at number one um you know 
it's a very odd pick to be number one, but I don't think it's, um, but I do think it's earned its its way into this conversation. Um, for those of you who don't know anything about this film, it's a it's a three and a half hour examination of the dull yet anxious life of a housewife in Brussels. Um, but I, th- you know, having said that, it's a highly suspenseful film, um, and it's very formally experimental. A lot of the scenes are shot in long takes. It's got an incredible central performance by a French actress Delphine Seyrig. Um, and you're just watching this housewife do her daily routine uh, over the course of the film. You see that, um, you're, you know, she's a she's a widow and she's taking care of her son and she, she does um, some uh, sex work on the side to help pay the bills. But you, you're seeing her do these these chores and cooking and things, housekeeping um, with immaculate precision. And then we start to see her making mistakes and you see the the stress and the anxiety beneath the surface and the film never tells you what she's stressed about i mean it's obvious um economic um stress regrets all these things kind of bubbling up beneath the surface here but it does a great job of never stating what it's about um or what it is that she's thinking about but you just see it through her actions and that's why it's it's so great um but it does take a lot of influence from um that ozu um technique excuse me those um i just mentioned where it's 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 deliberately in a um, rhythm that asks you to get on the rhythm of the film it's not going to jump cut to the to the important part it wants you to feel the rhythm of this woman's life and feel you know this 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 humdrum existence until things start to get worse and worse and worse and you're feeling it and even though it's a three and a half hour film you're on the edge of your seat by the second half of this film and you're like oh my god what's what is going to happen like just this is intense um and so i think it's a testament to its you know its cinematic tools that it's using the way it's telling its story that is so fascinating to people but i do think it's a testament to broadening the people who were pulled for this as as well as the availability of of um of films these days as to why this movie rocketed um out of its previous place which i can't remember where it was but i think it was at least in the top 30 um a, a decade ago and just all the way to the t- all the way to the front of the line um has really shown that our film culture is changing and i think that's a positive thing although this is probably one of the most if not the most controversial thing that lots of people uh, have taken umbrage with about this list but um i'm very excited and very happy this this film has made it this this place for this decade um on this list i think this was on your top 10 female directors list was that right maybe was that the list yeah i think we've done it a couple times but yeah i think i put it at number one on that list if i'm not mistaken yeah i think so and i love the fact that sight and sound didn't do a hollywood film for their number one Mm -hmm. i think that's most certainly a sign of the changing demographics of the voting population within the the bfi the british film institute and you know granted well, I will say they went a little more recent than Citizen Kane and Vertigo, right? The 40s and the 50s. They moved <laughs> yeah. to 1975. So it's yeah. like, you know, 50 years-ish. Mm-hmm. So a little more recent, but still old school. So like, but no, I thought this was great um, for a foreign film, for a female-directed film, a female-lead film to make it to their number one. I think it does show the changing culture of us of our taste of society's taste as generational replacement is taking place 
you know, older individuals are passing on, younger people are coming of age, we're experiencing new film, we have new access to older films. And what we as human beings like is changing because we as mm -hmm. human beings are changing. Yeah. Um, so I dig it. I dig this. Uh, I dig this choice a whole lot. And that's Gregory Day's rundown of Sight and Sound magazine's top 10 movies of all time if that's not like a big statement to make but <laughs> but they make it they make it mm -hmm. um and as per usual gregory day i do have a few questions for you about this list yeah. and firstly mm -hmm. i want to ask you you know what made you want to do this list and normally you always do an original list what made you want to talk about a different list this time yeah, I mean, I think uh, when this list came out, I want to say it came out in October, November last year, it was like everyone was talking about it. And um, I honestly forgot that because it came out like a 10 years before that, that everyone was talking about Vertigo as being the number one movie. And then I was, then now this is, uh, you know, if you're as into cinema as I am, the fact that Jean Delman made, made number one on this list, which is, a you know, this is a list that people take very seriously um, as we are, you know, people involved in cinema or fans of cinema or looking at the canon, the fact that this movie became number one, it's just uh, unbelievable. So I want to talk about it because it's really, you know, at the forefront of, of uh, cinema conversations these days. So um, figured I'd bring in here, we could we talk it out, um, but also just give us something a little different, you know, than, um, than our typical back and forth about uh, Hong Kong and horror movies. I dig it. I dig it. And for all our <laughs> listeners out there, if they want to, they want to go to a little cocktail party and seem cultured about the <laughs> Sight and Sound magazine's top ten films all times list. Yeah. There you go. This it's a good topic to just throw out there. I like it. I like it a lot. But I also do want to ask you, you know, like how many, if you were to think about it for a second, like and without naming names or which ones, mm -hmm. but if this were your top ten list, like how many do you think of theirs? of the films that we just talked about, how many of those films do you think would actually make your own top 10 films of all time? Like would Citizen Kane make it? Would Vertigo make it? You know, that that's what I'm asking. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have yeah. to say which ones, but like mm -hmm. roughly how many would you take the whole list would be carbon copy your own or maybe five or three or, or what, what do you think? Yeah, I would say definitely not a carbon copy. There's some, some things I don't, I don't agree with this, but I would say about five or six, maybe would probably carry over into my own, my own uh if i had to make this list gotcha gotcha now now with that in mind i'll put you on the spot a little bit for this one mm -hmm. so that would leave four or five spaces for your own picks yeah what do you think is in your opinion one of the greatest films ever that would be on your top 10 list that's not on this list oh without a doubt seven samurai um curse yeah, i'm yeah, not surprised yes, yes. Yeah. i mean i think to me that's just one of the if not the greatest film ever made it's just it like i think if we talked about it before we just got everything it's got drama it's got action it's just so well done it's you know the technique behind the filmmaking it, it's just so great um which it, i think it's number 20 on the oh, out of wow. the whole 100 list and it's the only kurosawa film i think it's on the list um and so it does it did kind of uh it kind of hurt that Kurosawa had fallen <laughs> so low in the list um, because he, you know, more so than maybe some of the other films on this list, I think one of the most influential filmmakers um, and one of the most humanistic filmmakers ever. Um, and the fact that not represented in the top 10 greatest films, you know, but that's just my opinion. 
I feel you. I feel you. I yeah. dig it. I like it. I like it. And and something else I was thinking throughout this list, and I want to talk to you about too is so this this list is called greatest films of all time, mm-hmm. and if you think about it, the newest movies on this list are from the year two thousand and one. And I was thinking, I was like, well, is there a movie from, let's say, 2020 or 2021 or even 2019 that was good enough to be on this list? And without telling you my own thoughts first, I'm going to ask you, do you think like a brand new movie from like 2021 could ever make it on a list like this? Uh, so close to the list coming out, I I don't think so. I don't really know how long it takes to prep a list. Um, if it's published in 2022, um, you know, I don't know if something that recent could make it on the list, uh, just for the amount of polling and time and everything. But I will say in the top 100, there are three films from, I, I believe, the year 2019 out of the out of the 100. So oh, okay. there are some that are fairly new that are on the list. Uh, I think Portrait Lady on Fire was number 30. It came out in 2019. And then Get Out and Parasite also made the list. So, um, yeah. So this new way of polling um, definitely opens the door to even more relevant films to start making its way onto the list. But is it? But as far as top 10, I doubt it. Get Out, was that Jordan Peele? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah, it is that's, number 100. That's 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 awesome that they made it all the way up to there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I was surprised because I was... Or rather, I should say, I am surprised because I would have really thought that new movies wouldn't stand a chance because mm-hmm. if you're talking greatest of all time, like a film needs a few years to to be out in the ether yes. for people to really experience it and to see if it's just a trend. Is it a fad? Is it just pop culture? Or mm-hmm. if it has staying power, if it has relevance power. Um, but to see that they have three inclusions of 2019 in the top 100, that means some people are saying, no, these are great movies, period. I like yeah. it. I like it a lot. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. You know, I think it's interesting because we'll see this list. But in, um, you know, 10 years from now, we'll see if those films hang on. Um, right. Their, we'll get to, to see you know. if they have that staying power or not. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's what's one of the wonderful things about the list is it's it's never a set list. So it's not like this is the greatest film of all time, period, end of, end of story it's to see how things are changing and uh, you know i don't know if john delman will be number one next uh in 10 years from now um but it'll be interesting to see you know does do these younger films start to move up the list do the older films fade away and so just uh an ongoing you know organic uh process of this whole thing was any comic book movie on the top 100 <laughs> uh no no I was trying yeah. to think of even. I was trying to think of if there's anything even out of the, you know, out of the, like Marvel. the Joaquin Phoenix yeah. jo- uh, Joker, maybe. Yeah. You could no, see that, no. Like vying for it, but no. no. <laughs> no. If anything, the crow should be there. No. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> um, it's so funny you say that for a different reason. I'll talk later. Um, but okay, so like something else I thought about, like I was looking at this whole list together, and this list is about half and half, almost. Um, half American Hollywood, half foreign. I think it's a little bit more foreign than Hollywood, but, mm-hmm. but only barely. Um, do you think that's a bias? And if so, what does it tell you? Like, I, I'm, I'm curious, and let me give listeners a little bit of perspective too, and, and maybe a little bit for you as well. So 
like we've said, this list is compiled by Sight and Sound Magazine. They're a British publication. They are owned by the British Film Institute, which is also known as the BFI. Now, for Americans, even if you're in if you're in the know about cinema in the U.S., you probably have heard of the AFI Top 100 list, which is the American Film Institute. Um, so I thought about how different would be the list for AFI versus BFI. And I don't know, I didn't check. I'll tell you that right now, I didn't check. Um, <laughs> but I was curious, like, do you think that this is a biased list? And how do you think it would compare to like AFI, for instance? Why don't we see even more foreign films? Almost half of it's Hollywood, you know? Uh, I would say the Sight and Sound BFI, they do a really good job of making sure they're taking a global perspective. Um, when doing these things, uh, I think the the top ten, the ratio, um, is a testament to, uh, I guess at least the American films is a testament to their, their Hollywood's far reaching um, influence over the world. But I think it's also telling that uh, BFI is and the people they are polling uh, are taking a global look at cinema and they're not just focusing on American films. Um, I do think the AFI. Is very specific to American cinema, so they—I don't believe they would ever release a list this globally diverse because that's not their focus. Um, so their films—if you look at their list—they're ah, all okay. American. Films. I didn't realize yeah. it was just American yeah. films. Okay. okay. Yeah, and um, and to me, I have my own qualms with the AFI because I—I never uh, really have the same opinions that they do um so i've always leaned more on bfi because even in their magazine in sight and sound they're they're always looking for, um, to support as many different um films from around the world different voices uh from different backgrounds and um mark cousins who's a critic for there did the, for them did a really great um extensive documentary called the story of film which tried to document the history of cinema you know, you know, in a, in a globally detailed process as, as they could. Um, I think it's like 10 hours or, or longer. Um, and so they do a great job um, trying to make, make the list feel that it's encompassing the entire world. But yeah, these Hollywood films, obviously Hollywood dominated the world um, for many, many decades. And so it's not surprising that um, you see these Hollywood films on there, but um, to a point you see, half this list even half the top 10 are from different countries so that's that's also a testament that uh, they are taking the steps to make sure they're not just looking at them you know english language films yeah and and like we've been saying the audience who are voting these films in are changing mm -hmm. so i would be very interested in 10 years how the top 100 and how the top 10 change even more you know does the yeah. citizen kane go from number three to number six for instance you know like I would be very interested in that because 10 years, mm -hmm. that's a good chunk of time where, you know, like when we were talking about generational replacement, a good chunk of old school movie watchers and critics and industry peoples, they're going to mm -hmm. pass on. They're going to die in 10 years. Yeah. Uh, and, and I don't mean to say that like to be morbid about it, but it's a fact. It's true, and, yeah. and newer generations will have aged 10 mm -hmm. more years and that will influence the films that they vote for. Yeah. So can the relevance of Citizen Kane drop, especially if you're polling a a global sample? Most certainly so. So I'm Absolutely. very interested to see how this changes. Mm -hmm. And yeah. to that end, you know, to think about this list in general, I ask what I always ask you when we end these lists, you know, why, 
why is this list important and why do you think other people should view this list as important? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important uh, to go back to what we were talking about. Like, this is that organic definition of the canon. So it's your, you know, it's not just a certain amount of people telling you what the greatest films of all time are. Not every year you're going to be told to go watch The Bicycle Thieves and Citizen Kane. Um, you're being, you're seeing this, and you're seeing that uh, this is changing. And so it's a great thing to keep your eye on every ten years, especially if you're interested in this. Um, to see how that changes. And so that's, I think, um, one of the only great measurement tools we have to see how the, the canon is changing. And it's not without its imperfections, obviously, because uh, BFI deliberately is is pushing an agenda to try to make sure they are pulling as many people as possible to get this, to, um, to make the most diverse list possible, to see what we are looking at globally, because they've, they've gone from looking at 1952, 1962, 72, so forth, um, and seeing that a lot of the same things were coming up. And so they were trying to trying to broaden the who they're asking to see if it's going to change the results. Um, you know, it, it, I think it does in one way upset people who think that there are like only 10 great films and those films shouldn't be, um, shouldn't be questioned. So I think it is great that people can look at this list and see that, um, you know, the more people we ask, the more people we pull, the more people who are invited into this um, into this poll, we can get a real good global view of what's important to people as far as um, important important movies go. Um, and so, yeah, that's I think I think it's the same for me as far as why I think it's important, why it's important to me, or why I think other people should um, view it, is because it just it's kind of got its finger on the pulse as far as like how we're evolving as audience members and as uh cinephiles or whatever you want to call us um yeah i think it's one of those just great tools that's out there that allows us to do that uh, to see that culture shift over time i like it i like it a lot and i'm interested too now to, to check it against the the afi and see <laughs> you know how how american-centric america can be and but also to see you know how things are changing because the british film institute like i'm curious mm -hmm. what's their sample size you know how far yeah. out is the reach for their demographics what's their age groups that they have and different things like mm -hmm. this like is it is it heavily weighted towards people who are over 50 years old and things of this sort like you right. know those those kinds of of statistics about your sample mm -hmm. greatly yeah. influence it. You mm -hmm. know, if we were to do, if the Brit, if the BFI were to do greatest films of all time by people under thirty years old, I imagine that would be yeah. a very different list. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So, age of the people polled, I think, yeah. would be a great influence on this. Mm -hmm. I dig mm -hmm. it though. What a great conversation! But before we let you go for the day, but you tell the good listeners at home what you got going on lately over at Hipsville AD. Yeah, uh, right now I'm. Uh going to be putting up a, a new piece I've been working on that's uh, examining how the Western got from the American mythology to the cynical um, rebirth that it had in Italy in the 1960s. So it's a little good, nice little piece about the incremental shifts in the genre as it changed from one to the other. Um, and that'll be dropping here in the month of January. Um, you can find that at baddayday.substack.com. Most excellent, my friend. Thank you so much for coming on as always. Yeah, thank you. And everyone at home, that's Tuesdays, Wednesdays, or Thursdays. We don't know which day of the week it's going to be yet. Top 10 list. Check out our friend Gregory Day online. Follow him everywhere, people. And interested in writing in a show? Follow us YouTube, Instagram, myself on LinkedIn. Let yourself be heard, people. And always remember that Lo-Fi Poly is more than just me. It's the week 
and we be. Talk to you soon, Lo-Fi listeners. Pickering and Dane, signing off. Adios, folks. And in no particular order, except for the order that they are in, my top 10 list movie of all time. (laughs) Number 10, The Crow, 1994. Number nine, Girl Interrupted, 1999. Number eight, Matrix, 1999. Number seven, Empire Records, 1995. Number six, Hackers, 1995. Number five, Lost in Translation, 2003. Number four, A Bronx Tale, 1993. Number three, Coach Carter, 2005. Number two, Pump Up the Value, 1990. Number one, Underworld, 2003 to 2017. All of them, I love them so much. And there you have it. Best movies of the millennium. Enough said. Gregory Day, you want a last word on that? I'm baffled, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Don't say. Um, But yeah, I was, um, no, I I don't know. That's that's all I got. (laughs) I've never seen Coach Carter.